This is our, I guess I'd have to say, 13th time that we've met. But because we've been meeting extra, about 15, 14 minutes extra every time, rather than being the 13th session, this is probably more like the 14th session. That means we only have one more left after today, so we're getting very, very close. And we have two events to look at. The event that we want to focus in on related to the kingdom is what I describe as destruction of the kingdom. I tried to catch in one word the essence of what all these events are all about so you can better remember them. So destruction is probably the best description. And that will begin in chapter, basically chapter 11 through the end of Second Kings. And we'll look at some of the passages in those those books relating to bring out kind of the main points relating to the destruction. So that'll be our focus for today. So that brings us to our next major event that we've been looking at in world history, dealing with the destruction of the nation of Israel. At least... That's the word I've chosen to capture a series of events leading to the collapse of the kingdom. The underlying attribute of God or characteristic of God is God's discipline. God disciplines. That's very clear in Scripture. We're going to see what God is doing in the nation of Israel in bringing them to an end as a nation is part of a broader plan that in fact is discipline. It's not annihilation. They're not going to be annihilated. They're not going to be totally destroyed. But they are, in terms of a nation, they're they're going to be a nation no longer. They're not going to be in the land. They'll be, in fact, they'll even be scattered as a people. And they're not going to have the freedom to observe their constitution. So in essence, all three of the elements of them as a nation is disrupted. But it's part of God disciplining them, not casting them away entirely, not abandoning them altogether, but even prophesying that this discipline will come to an end when God will do a new work amongst them. And what God is doing with Israel, he has not even completed in our day as well. Just a couple of passages that indicate this. Second Samuel seven fourteen. This is within the kingdom age, and this is the what is that covenant that we looked at last time? Davidic covenant, where God says, "I will be a father to him." In other words, the kings of, that descend from David, I'll be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him. Actually, the word there is discipline with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. That's the Davidic covenant. So it's built in. God's discipline is built into the Davidic covenant. The Hebrews passage, probably the best-known passage in the New Testament, Hebrews 12.6, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God loves Israel. He's in the process in this period of time of disciplining them. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And actually, the Hebrews passage is a quotation out of Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. And by the way, you might say, well, Hebrews 3, 11 through 12, is this just a general truth? 
Well, I think Hebrews makes it an absolute. Does that make sense? So, in our list here, and by the way, if you can remember, these will have 11 major events. If you can remember each of these, you will have basically an outline of all of Old Testament history. All of Old Testament history. So we've looked at creation, we've looked at the fall, we've looked at the flood, we've looked at the scattering or the Tower of Babel, we've looked at Abraham, and when you think of Abraham, think of Abrahamic covenant, because through Abraham we have the coming of the nation, and the nation is born in the Exodus. Shortly after the Exodus, God gives them their law, or that's the constitution for the nation. And then we have the conquest, so these three major events lead to the children of Israel becoming a nation, become a nation. So, Exodus law, conquest, and this is leading to what we looked at last time, the kingdom, which is not an event in itself, but a series of events that kind of leads to the time when Israel was prominent. During this period of time, during David and Solomon, particularly the later years in David's reign, Israel was the kingdom of the world. They were the world empire. And that was God's intent, that they would rule the world all the way to Genesis 1, 28, the dominion mandate. And God intended to use Israel to be a missionary nation, remember? They were to be his people that would have an influence in all of all of the world. And during that period of Solomon particularly, that was partially true. But unfortunately we have sin, and sin works its effects, and as a result of that we'll see the same cycles that we've been looking at that in every case lead to God's judgment or discipline. Same thing's going to happen with the kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at next, where that kingdom at its high point in David and Solomon is going to basically self-destruct. So I call it the destruction. And there's events that lead up to it, but the main event of the destruction is when the nation, actually the southern kingdom, is taken into exile into Babylon. And that's the destruction of the nation of Israel. We'll look at one more event in our last session. I don't have it on our timeline here, but we will look at the return. And the return prepares the nation of Israel for the biggest event of all world history, which would be the coming of Messiah. And in this course, we won't get into that. Okay, in our outline, uh, the Old Testament, on your outline sheet there, We're basically talking about the kingdom of Israel, and last time we, in terms of the outline, we looked at what is described as the united kingdom. That's the events leading up to the appointing of kings, and then the establishment of Israel under a kingdom format. And it's united until we come to chapter 11, where things are going to, the wheels are going to start to come off the cart there. And beginning in chapter 12, we have a divided kingdom. Chapter 11 still deals with Solomon, but God basically says, I'm going to discipline you, but the discipline isn't going to take place until your sons. 
So when we speak of the divided kingdom, that's the portion of Israel that begins this process of Israel basically collapsing. And that runs to Second Kings chapter 17. So right off the bat, before we look at even any passages, and we'll kind of look at the passages in relationship to this first implication. The first implication is we're going to learn from these passages, and we've already seen the weakness of human kings. And the weakness of human kings begins with even the first king. He's a king after the people's choice. So when you look at Saul, you see that Saul is a disobedient individual. He's a king after the people's choice. He's an impressive human being. He's an impressive man. Head and shoulders, the text says, above everyone else. But he has inner flaws, and the main flaw is he doesn't have a consistent walk with the Lord and ends up disobedient, and God removes him, and the Spirit leaves him. So we've already seen with Saul a weakness of the human kings, and as a result, the Benjamin dynasty is removed, which wasn't prophesied anyway, God knew that he was going to fail. But that leads us to David. So we have Saul, disobedient, and even David, Israel's greatest king, has a failure of flesh, or the lapse, lapse of his flesh. So the greatest of kings can't handle temptation. He's a sinner, just like everyone else. And what is in view there, basically, is the incident with Bathsheba, takes another man's wife, and then he begins to cover it up and has to murder her husband. And we see that lapse. So even though David is a man after God's own heart, he's not perfect. And when the text speaks of him being a man after God's own heart, that means that even when he fails to be a man after God's own heart, means that you accept your sin, and you confess your sin, and you restore. doesn't mean that you have to be perfect, because none are, even David. But he's a man after God's own heart is because he deals with the sin in a biblical way. In other words, he, he confesses his sin and restores. So the failure of the kings involves David as well. And at the end, we talked about Solomon. And Solomon is said to be the wisest of men, and yet his life ends in a failure of wisdom. He doesn't follow the same wisdom that he even writes about and that God gives him. And, in fact, he violates the covenant as well and violates what God said he should not do. He took foreign wives, and the Bible said that if he does that, they will have an influence on them, and he will become idolatrous, and that's what happened to Solomon. In fact, let's start our reading. Look at chapter... 11, and we'll start with Connie in chapter 11. Real quickly, read the first three verses there. First Kings 11, 1 through 3. Solomon, however, loved the name for him, and besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. So it's not just one. It's a lot of foreign wives 
They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not marry them, because they will surely be after their God. Okay, there's the prophet's interpretation of events in world history. In other words, this leads, so he's reminding, this is what's going to happen. This is exactly what happened. Keep reading. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives, royal birds, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Okay, they led him astray. In fact, they led him into idolatry. Let's read. So that gives you a hint in terms of Solomon. If you read 5 through 10, it just gives more details concerning the worship of idols as a result of these foreign wives. And God is going to chasten him. Skip to uh, verse 9. Do you want to read 9 through th- about 13 there? Or 11 at least? Now the Lord was angry with Solomon. His heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had given So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, Okay, so the kingdom is going to be torn in half, basically. Now, the next verse, 12 through 13, tells us that it's not going to happen in his lifetime, it's going to happen in the next generation. So that's his legacy. He leaves a negative legacy. And the bottom line is it's a failure of wisdom. In fact, it's a failure in a lot of ways. So beginning with this part, Let's skip down to 26. Do you want to read 26, Kinsey? Jeroboam, the son of the Okay, in my version it says he rebelled against the king. So Jeroboam, we're introduced to him, he's going to lead a rebellion. And if we read all of the verses, what's going to happen is the kingdom is going to be divided and Jeroboam is going to be an apostate king that's going to lead ten of the tribes to the north and they're going to be called Israel. They're going to be called Israel. And basically God will be working primarily through the remaining tribe that's called Judah and there'll be a second tribe along with them, Benjamin but they'll be called Judah. So from here on out in Scripture, when it refers to Israel, it's not talking about the composite nation. It's not talking about the united nation or the kingdom united. It's talking about the ten tribes. So when it describes a king, he's a king of Israel, it means he's a king of the north that is after the line of Jeroboam. And they rebelled. So let's take a look a little bit at the apostasy of Jeroboam to see what that's all about. And we'll just look at it. We won't look at all of the verses, obviously, because there's too many. And and just to follow up, there'll be another individual that we'll look at that will lead the southern kingdom. And we'll come back to that passage in a moment. The southern kingdom will be called Judah, and the northern kingdom will be called Israel. So now the kingdom is divided. That in itself disrupts all that God is intending for a united kingdom. And it's the first stage of their ultimate destruction. On a timeline here, we have Saul's reign, beginning in 1043. God removes him. 
anoints David until Saul is removed totally, and in about 1011, David begins his reign. Solomon's reign, 971, if you want a time frame, all of these are B.C., obviously. And then the divided kingdom in the chapter that we're looking at, uh, actually the next chapter, is in 931. So let's take a look, first of all, at Jeroboam, and let's look at the apostasy. Mark, you want to begin reading, and where we're introduced to Jeroboam, uh, why don't you skip to, uh, actually read 31 through 39, and then I'll have you skip to verse 40. He said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon. Now this is a prophet that is speaking to him. And he's basically announcing what God is going to do. Keep reading. So he's, he's tearing into ten pieces. God, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jericho. Jerusalem, king which I have chosen among all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, they did not, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and observing my statutes and my ordinances, as his father David. Okay, now notice a couple of things there. They have become idolatrous. The influence of the wives, remember he married these wives, they influenced him and it influenced the whole kingdom. And because of that, now God is basically tearing the kingdom in half. And the prophet is giving the northern part to Jeroboam. And notice also in verse 33, when it refers to doing what is right in my sight and observing my statutes and my ordinances, what is that? They're violating the law. They're violating the Mosaic Covenant. They're breaking the covenant. So God is going to intervene in discipline. Keep reading. Nevertheless, verse 34. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David whom I chose, who observed my commandments and my statutes. Okay, notice David, and from here on out, the kings of the south will be evaluated based on the standard of David. Now, David wasn't perfect, but David responds rightly when he makes mistakes, and the kings will be evaluated on that basis, so we have reference to David. And if you read the rest of the text, the rest of First and Second Kings, the prophets that write these will continually refer, he walked according to David, or he walked, or he did not walk according to David. Uh, it'll make reference to that. We'll also see later on that the other kings will be measured according to Jeroboam, the ones to the north. And all of them, it makes a note, they did the same sin as Jeroboam. We'll read some of those passages. So it's going to be given by God. So God is involved here as part of, of discipline. Keep reading. So I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give it to you, even ten tribes. But to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem, a city where I have chosen myself for my name. Okay, why is that? Why is verse 36? What does that remind you of that we looked at last time? 
The location is important, but what else is important there in terms of what did God promise to David in the Davidic covenant? Remember, this is a fulfillment of David. God is going to perform according to what he established in the Davidic covenant. He's going to honor the covenant. It's unconditional. So he's going to keep a ruler in, in the line of David. Okay, so that's what verse 36 is all about. God fulfilling his part of the covenant, regardless of Israel, but at the same time, he's going to discipline Israel as well. Okay, skip to verse 40. We won't read the rest of that, but skip to verse 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to put Jeroboam to death. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt. He was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Okay, so Solomon is trying to overturn what God has determined, and obviously that's not going to happen. Now, this is the sin of Jeroboam in that he establishes a religion that is somewhat different than Judaism. Now, it has all the form of Judaism, but he establishes a new temple, or at least two sites of worship, two temples, two locations, to keep the people from going down to Jerusalem. So let's read that. Chapter 12, verses 25. Linda, do you have anything to read there? And by the way, he's going to establish, he's going to establish basically his headquarters in what's called Samaria. Now, in the Old Testament, when it refers to Samaria, it's not necessarily referring to a geographical region like it does in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Samaria is a large geographical region north of Jerusalem. But in many of the contexts of the Old Testament, it's referring to a city that was located on uh, this hill right here. And the first time I went to Israel, I was able to visit ancient Samaria. Are there ruins up there? Yes, I'll show you some of them. This is Tel Samaria from the south. A tell is a mound or an ex- uh, archaeological excavation. I'll show you more photographs of this in a moment. But let's read this passage because this is key. This is the sin of Jeroboam. You got it? And Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out and built Himalayan. Uh, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom, the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of his people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will show me to return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Okay, see the motivation there? In other words, if the people go to Jerusalem, they're going to say, what, you know, why do we have to do this? I mean, we need to worship the true God, and he's in Jerusalem, and let's give our loyalty back to, or back to the descendants of David, which would be Rehoboam. That's part of the sin of Jeroboam. Is he's establishing his own, basically, religion. So he's establishing two sites. And notice the two sites that are named. Keep reading. So the king, so the king consulted and made two golden calves. What does that remind you of? Keep reading. And he said to them, to the cows? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not the cows. <laughs> it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel. Notice your gods. In other words, he's establishing 
his own worship. That's the sin of Jeroboam. Keep reading. Oh, Israel, that brought you up from the land of He's got the same religion that they had, like you say, at Sinai when they built the golden calves. And remember, they said the same thing then. Yeah, brought us out out of Egypt. It wasn't Yahweh. Okay, keep reading. He set one in Bethel. Which is the south part of the northern kingdom. Bethel is just north of Jerusalem, so it's not far from Judah. The other he put in Dan. Which is way north. Now this thing... Became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Okay, this thing became a sin. This is the sin of Jeroboam. And he made houses on the high places. So did uh, Saul, right? Yep, a lot of them. And made priests from among all the people who not the sons of Okay, now you can, we're not going to read all of the passages. I'll just give you a few passages, but essentially when you read the kings of Israel, they will be evaluated in term, by the prophets that are writing in terms of the sin, and it will be a reference to the sin of Jeroboam. So they just followed the same idolatrous religion that Jeroboam established. So here's Samaria, and here's Bethel. See Bethel there, the little black dot is Bethel. Jerusalem, uh, just a bike right away, so it's not very far. In fact, I would ride my bike all the way to Samaria. The reason I mentioned the first time I went to Samaria, I was able to go there. Today, it's very difficult to go to Samaria because it's on the West Bank. And it's hard to get. And it's not usually safe to go into the West Bank anyway. So here's Samaria. That's the city. Now, eventually, this whole region in the New Testament would be called Samaria. And Dan, it's not shown on this map, but it'd be all the way, in fact, it's at the, the most northern part of Israel at that time. So, the sin of Jeroboam, we won't read all of these if you want to jot them down, but skip to chapter 14, 16. And these are just examples. You want to read that one, Randy? Uh, 14, 16. And I can't remember which king is in view there. And he shall give Israel up. Jeroboam, he did say. Okay, it's just a reference back to the sin of Jeroboam. Uh, skip over 1526. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and he sent wherewith he gave Israel to sin. And it's referring in verse 25, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel, and then you read, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father. And his father's Jeroboam, and notice it says, and in his sin which he made Israel sin. And if you read all of the rest of these, in fact, read one more. Skip over to 16, read read that one. And you can read the rest of them, and all of them refer back to the sin of Jeroboam. Then the word of the Lord came to Jacob, the son of Hanani, against Bashan, saying, For as much as I accepted you on the dust, and made you prince over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and made my people Israel sin. Back to the pattern of Jeroboam, and every one of these verses refer to that. And the, the bottom line here, it's a violation of the Mosaic Covenant. You want to read that one, Loretta? 1910, 1 Kings. He said, I have been very zealous. 
on the Lord, the God of hosts. When the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now this is Elijah speaking. So Elijah is basically, he's a prophet, and he's basically describing the condition, but did you catch a little phrase? Israel, the sons of Israel have what? Forsaken my covenant. The covenant is very important. This is why we've been stressing it. And similarly, it says similarly in verse 14. And this is just another shot of Tel Samaria from the north. This is from the other direction. And basically the city would have been occupying this whole mound there the ancient city. Another shot, this is Samaria. You can see a little bit of the uh, remains of the uh, archaeological site. Samaria, Iron Age, Acropolis, this would be Kingdom Age, Iron Age, a little bit of the excavation there. The Hellenistic Tower, this would be later, and a Roman theater, this is a Roman theater right there. You see the seats there? These would have been built later, but on the same site during the Greek and uh, Roman period. But it's on the same site, so if you visit the site, you see all of the archaeology of the different periods. So Jeroboam is an apostate king, and he, elite, he leads the ten kings of the north, and they all follow his idolatrous pattern and, and sin. And eventually Israel, because of its idolatry, is taken into captivity, and let's read, I'm going to skip down, Second Kings, everybody turn to Second Kings. We could have read a lot of passages, but it gets a little repetitious because the kings are evil. All of the kings of the north are evil. There's not a good king in any of them. They're all idolatrous. They all follow after the sin of Jeroboam. And eventually God takes the northern kingdom into uh, captivity because of idolatry. So let's just read a couple passages relating. And those passages, well, first of all, they officially reject. Ahab is a king of Samaria, by the way. Before we get to Second Kings, let's read 1632 and 33. Whose turn is that? Uh, Marcy? This is kind of the official rejection of not only Ahab, but it kind of solidifies the rejection of the northern kingdom. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. See, catch that? He was more evil than even the evil kings of Israel before him. Even more evil than Jeroboam. And by the way, this is... This is a first century structure on the same site. So, like I said, when you visit the site, you see different eras of time there. Herodian temple. And similarly, verse 21, it's similar to what we have in uh, 16, but let's jump ahead. Let's go to Second Kings 15:29. We have the fall of the northern kingdom. And let's start back. Connie, you want to... Okay, now who is the world empire of that day now? The Assyrian Empire, and we have Tiglath-Pileser is their king. 
And he's coming down, and notice what he's going to do. He's going to take all those cities. You don't need to read all the names. Okay, so he deported them to Assyria. This is captivity. Let's read a couple of other verses. Let's skip to chapter 17. Uh, Holland, you want to read 17, 7? And we won't read all of those verses, but read a few of those. Now this came about because of the sons of Israel. Here's the explanation. Because the sons of Israel, what? Had sinned. The Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, and they feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had Okay. Why is God taking them into captivity? Idolatry. Because they followed these other gods. Notice it keeps, if you have noticed throughout the Old Testament, keeps referring back, keeps reminding them of their beginnings in, in Egypt and God bringing them out. That's why it's a major event. It keeps popping up in the Old Testament. Go ahead and skip to read 16, 17, and 18. Same chapter, 17, verses 16, 17, and 18. They first set all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves multi-pages, even to cats, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and so called. Then they made their son... What, before you read on, what does that sound like? Same thing they did at Sinai, same thing they did under Jeroboam. They left Egypt, but they took Egypt with them. Keep reading. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to the evil in the sight of the Lord for both of them. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Okay, none was left except the tribe of Judah. God removed them. That's captivity. I want to read 22 and 23, same chapter. The people of Israel walked in all the states that Jeroboam was in. See again? Jeroboam again. Keep reading. He did not depart from them, and so the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all the servants and prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Okay, so they're exiled to this day, the day of the writing of the book. And you could read more if you went on to chapter 18. It just tells more of the captivity. And not only captivity, but there were also a scattering of people as well. And the photograph is just a, a relief from, I can't remember, this is a, a city in the ancient Assyrian Empire. Archaeologists have been covered from 721 to 705 of Sargon II. And basically, I think these are captives, I'm not sure, that represent captives, possibly Israelites. And they found it in an Assyrian throne room celebrating the captivity because that's what they did. So we have the fall of the northern kingdom and the ten tribes no longer exist as tribes. So we have the divided kingdom and here you have a picture of the divided kingdom. We have the northern kingdom up here. This is Israel right here. These would have been the ten kingdoms. This is a foreign nation, Aram, and Judah would be over here, Judah and Benjamin, that would be the southern kingdom. So the kingdom was divided, and now this is no more because they are scattered and in captivity. We have 19 evil kings, 
Over that period, their rain was about 11.7 average in years. 19 evil kings. Some of them only months, but some of them a little longer. And on our little timeline here, the kingdom is divided, 931. We have Ahab, the, probably the most evil of kings. And we have a long period of time. God deals with a lot of kings. So what does God do? Remember, God... What does God do? He patiently lets sin have its full effects. And in terms of the northern kingdom, that comes about a little bit before 722, and God intervenes in 722 for the fall of the nation of Israel. So we have 200 years of divided kingdom in there. And there's several kings. There's 19 kings, so just put Ahab as one of the worst ones. So that leaves us with a surviving kingdom. That would be the kingdom to the south. That's Judah. And that is covered in 2 Kings 18 through the end of the book of 2 Kings. And that introduces us. We've got to go back to Rehoboam, who will be the first king of the southern kingdom. So now we're going back in time. So let's turn back to 1 Kings to see a stupid thing that he does. And we have Shechem and Mount Ebal uh, pictured in the photograph here. This is where it took place. So 1 Kings 12, 1 through 4. Mark. And three of them sent to Shechem. All Israel had come to Shechem to make king. Down here. And that's where the photograph is, Shechem. Keep reading. Now when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt, or he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of Solomon. Okay, there you have the two. You have Rehoboam, and we just looked at Jeroboam, who took the ten tribes, and he refers to Egypt there. Keep reading. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Jeroboam, saying, Your father made you a yoke heart. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father, Teddy Yoke, which you put on us, and we will serve you. Okay. And he consults the elders, and they give him advice, and basically good wisdom. And then he gets advice from the guys that he grew up with, his colleagues and fraternity brothers, I guess. Let's read verse 16, see what happens there. Oh, basically what happens is he takes the advice of the stupid ones, the ones that he grew up with, and they said, instead of lightening their load, double it, or pour more on them. And then in verse 16, we see what happened. All Israel saw that the king did not listen to them. People answered the king, saying, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Through our tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed. Okay, departed for their tents. And 19 and 20, you want to read those, Linda? So Israel, this being in rebellion, was the house of Israel. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly of Adam's Okay, so that kind of goes back to what we talked about when the kingdom is divided now. So the ten go to the north, and the reason I'm giving you uh, Rehoboam, because this is the beginning of Rehoboam. 
And there are good kings and there's evil kings in the southern kingdom. Some of them introduce reforms and others do evil. They're all descendants of David. They're just one dynasty. Now in the in the north, there's there's different dynasties and some of them overthrow others, but they're all evil. Shechem in the middle of the nation here. It's a little bit longer bike ride from Jericho to Shechem. I'd probably still do it, but not today because it's too dangerous. But <laughs> we're gonna skip over a lot of history here. Basically the the history repeats itself. The southern kingdom falls into idolatry as well. And one of the good kings is Hezekiah and in the Second Kings passages, it talks about him not only reforming things. Archaeologists have found a wall that is believed that he built. And there's some other structures that you can visit in Jerusalem. So a pretty thick wall. Can't quite tell. Well, this gives you a little scale. There's a railing here. So this is about 15 feet across. It would have been a Jerusalem wall. Another shot of the same wall. So that dates way back. And he dug a, a tunnel, basically, that carried water from the Gihon Spring. The Gihon Spring here, you can't quite see it here. Uh, the spring is outside of the city. This is the city of David up on this hill here. This is looking up the Kidron Valley. This is Temple Mount here. This, so we're looking north here. This is the Mount of Olives. We're close to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. There's a Gihon Spring here. The city is dependent on this spring for its water. The city is very vulnerable to attack because if an enemy comes and just shuts off this water, all they got to do is wake them out until they run out of water and then they, they can capture the city. So in the time of Hezekiah, he built a tunnel, which is an engineering feat, through limestone rock from the Gihon to a location inside the city wall, kind of down in a lower area of the city of David the Pool of Siloam, which also occurs. This is kind of a sketch of the Hezekiah's Tunnel, Gihon Spring over here, and he goes into the limestone, and he comes to the Pool of Siloam over here. So it's under all of that bedrock. The city of David would be located up on this area here, all the way down to, in fact, I think this dotted line would be the boundary of the city of David. This is in a museum in Jerusalem. So, Rehoboam makes a foolish decision. The kingdom is divided. Judah eventually ends up in idolatry, very similar to the northern kingdom. Let's read a couple of passages that tell us that. And, Randy, do you want to read Second Kings 24, beginning in verse 10? At that time, the Jerusalem. Okay, this is Babylon now. Babylon has overtaken Assyria as the world empire. Nebuchadnezzar, you're familiar with him from the book of Daniel. He's king. And what happens? Keep reading. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of Babylon, even ten thousand captains, 
characters in called Crassness. None remains in force or the world. Okay, so they go into captivity. And it gives you a lot of detail there. And you can read the rest of the chapter and talks about other phases of the conquest, basically, in the southern kingdom. And that's basically the destruction of the kingdom. They're a kingdom no more. So we have the surviving kingdom. This would be the geographical location of Judah and Benjamin down in this area. There's Jerusalem there. The average reign, what was the average reign of the kings of the north? Which, 11.7, I think. 17.7 average reign of the southern. And they're all from the tribe of Judah. And they're all descendants of David and Solomon. So here's the passages that we read, idolatry, and then captivity, and here's the pool of Siloam. This is Hezekiah's tunnel right here, where the water flows, which is, like I said, an engineering feat, because they started at the two ends, if you read the biblical text, and they met in the middle. And that thing winds around, as you saw that sketch there. So how do you, how do you calculate that? They had some engineering skills, I think. Was the pool so long the place where the Yes. Yeah, that would be in the southern tip of the city of David, and you can visit that in Jerusalem as well. I think I took that photograph. I'm not sure. I get photographs in different ways. and can't remember which ones I took. On our little timeline here, we have the fall of Israel, 722. Hezekiah is a good king. Josiah is a good king. And then in 586, we have the fall of Judah. So we have another, what, 140 years about. So God patiently waits and uses the kings that reform, but eventually things continue to unravel until God is done with them. 586 is the final Babylonian. Just a reminder, you see anything familiar? We've seen this before, right? Cycles of sin. What's number one in the cycles of sin? Do you remember? you have it memorized by now? Who starts things? No one remember? Prosperity. Okay, God works a work of grace. What's the work of grace in this cycle? God blesses them as a kingdom and gives them great prosperity and blesses them mightily under David and Solomon and establishes them as a world kingdom. In fact, the dominant kingdom of that time. Then what happens? Sin begins its corrupting effects, number two. But God doesn't act immediately. Remember, he didn't even act immediately in Solomon. He went to the next generation. And he didn't even act immediately. He allowed how many years until ultimate captivity? So, number three, God patiently endures sin Sin reaches its full corruption. And then what's number four? God intervenes to judge, but also to save. And it's salvation in that God is going to work a work in the people of Israel, they're not a nation anymore, to correct some things. One of the things that's going to be corrected is idolatry. Israel, for the most part, no longer goes back to idolatry. And what he's going to do is he's going to prepare a new generation to begin the process of the next major thing that God is going to do is he's going to send Messiah. And there'll be a new work of grace. So we see these cycles over and over. But at that point, it's Judah, right? You said Israel, 
I'm talking about the the total nation. Yeah, total nation. Yeah, good question there. So we just saw the weakness of human kings that lead to the destruction. They all have flaws, even Israel's greatest. Let's take a look, because this is an important element of this whole period of time, the role of prophets. God raises up prophets, and we're not going to look at any individual prophets, but I want to give you some principles related to what God is doing with the prophets, so you can put them in their perspective, in the proper perspective. The role of prophets. We've looked at the first implication of this period of time is the weakness of human kings. I think what God is doing throughout history is just showing the sinfulness and the weakness of man in general. From as many perspectives as you can see them, from leaders to people to nations, the unbelieving nation, you know, kind of from every direction. The Bible is clear. In fact, Randy alluded to total depravity. I think that's kind of an underlying theme of all of scriptures from start to finish. We're also seeing another theme in terms of God and his faithfulness, and particularly in the Old Testament, faithfulness to covenant, which includes faithfulness to his people, to the nation of Israel. And we will see, in spite of the weakness of human kings, God is going to remain faithful to his covenant, but because of the weakness of the human kings and weakness of people in general, people will suffer consequences for that. And the nation will suffer consequences as well and experience discipline. That's what we're leading to in the destruction of the nation. Now, prophets had a very important role in this period of time. And I want to give you kind of an overview of what God is doing with prophets. Now, he's used prophets actually beginning... Well, maybe let me ask you the question. Who is the first prophet that the Bible identifies as a prophet in Scripture? Moses? That's a suggestion? First prophet that Scripture identifies. Very good. You remember you remember Hebrews class. <laughs> right. Yet Jesus identifies Abel. Actually, the writer of Hebrews identifies Abel as the first prophet. Enoch is also identified as a prophet. So we have prophets that go all the way back into pre-flood time frames. And then the most prominent is probably Moses that you mentioned. But in this period of time, God raises up uh, kind of an entire school, if you will, or kind of a whole group of prophets during the period of time of Israel's decline. And you have not only prophets, but you have a lot of miraculous things that two particular prophets do, Elijah and Elisha. So the prophets, we have the rise of them, and we see kind of an emphasis of them beginning with the reigns of Jeroboam, and parallel with Jeroboam would be Rehoboam, but they rise up particularly in the north because the north is more corrupt than the south. And eventually the south catches up with them. The purpose of the prophets is to remind the nation of Israel of their obligation to the Lord, and particularly to the covenants that God entered into with them. 
So they remind the nation. And if you read even in these historical books, they continually point back to the writings of Moses, the law of Moses, the covenant of Moses. So they are reminders to the people because the people forget. And what they also do, the, the purpose is to correct the nation of Israel. Now, they're not able to do that, but they give enough revelation, enough warning that the nation, had they responded rightly, would be able to correct themselves. So God sent them to give them every opportunity to correct the wrong of their ways. And another thing that they do is they interpret the situation. They interpret the historical situation in light of God's covenants. And we see that. Now, when we speak of uh, prophets, there are two kinds, or you might divide them into two classifications of prophets. The first kind are those that you're familiar with, Isaiah, the Jeremiah's, the Hosea's, and those that are clearly prophetic, some of them predictive in terms of prophecy. But there are also other prophets that we've been looking at today. What do we classify those as? Historical prophets. In other words, the books, the historical books are written by prophets. And what they are doing is they are interpreters of history. They're giving us history from God's perspective and interpreting history. That's why you have all of these notes that tell you this king did evil in the sight of the Lord or this king continued in the sin of Jeroboam. That is interpretive. In other words, this is a divine evaluation of that kingdom under that reign of that king. Or this king, you know, did away with the Asherim or the high places or whatever that king did. That's a divine evaluation. That's a positive one. This king did good in the eyes of the Lord. That's a prophetic, in other words, God's divine interpretation. So we don't have just historical books. What we have, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, these are prophetic in the sense that they interpret history. They're historical, but they are interpretive, and they're interpretations of history interpreted from God's perspective. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that's the main purpose of the prophets. So that's why they deal with the issues they deal with, is they are showing where Israel went wrong and reminding Israel of God's faithfulness. Now, in the historical books, they don't predict as much as they do in the more overtly prophetic books. So they have a very definite ministry during the kingdom. I've already mentioned that God kind of confirms them or some of them with miracles. They bring people back from the dead. Elijah did, and so did Elisha. They did unusual things, like on one occasion somebody lost an axe head, and he's all concerned about it, and the guy makes it float to the surface, iron floating. So they have this ministry, and it's a varied ministry. They primarily show God's faithfulness to some references to the Abrahamic covenant, some references to the Mosaic Covenant, sometimes to the Davidic Covenant, but God is always faithful. They also show particularly the overtly prophetic books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and those. They also show the pagan nations and how God is going to deal with them as well. And that God is sovereignly working amongst them 
to bring discipline to them. So they deal with those issues as well. But the focus is with Israel slash Judah after the divided kingdom. And in fact, a prophet introduces that divided kingdom. We saw that, we read that passage in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, where it predicts that the kingdom will be divided after the time of, of Solomon. They also predict a future that is bright for Israel, and we'll talk some more about that as well. One other thing that we'll get into here, we'll also look at the final covenant. There's there's one more covenant in the Old Testament, it's called the New Covenant, and we'll look at it briefly. And Jeremiah introduces it at the darkest time of Israel's history, when it's very clear that Israel is pretty much done. And it gives them hope that God's going to continue to deal with them. And that covenant basically is a covenant of restoration, enablement, regeneration. We'll, we'll look briefly at it. Looking at that, Alva McLean has an excellent book. He says the following, quote, the, the moral problem posed by the failure of the Mosaic Covenant will under the new covenant be met by God's own sovereign grace and power. So that already hints at the nature of the new covenant. It's going to be unconditional. And it's God's own sovereign grace and power. By these means, he goes on, by these means the benefits of the Mosaic Covenant will be attained and at the same time its moral requirements will be secured. And by this time, before the New Covenant, we see that man just can't abide by the Mosaic Covenant. He just does not have it within him. But the New Covenant is going to give that enablement, is what Alba is saying here. So he goes on... uh, And at the same time, its moral requirements will be secured, not as a legal condition of blessing, but as its divinely caused result. In other words, God's going to produce it. The new covenant, therefore, is in the gracious spirit of the earlier Abrahamic covenant. And it's gracious because it's going to be unconditional. Rather than in the legalistic spirit of the Mosaic covenant, which it supplants. And he continues, it is true that under the the latter there was promised divine forgiveness in the case of Israel's failure, but here it is deeply significant that when the sin has been confessed, it is not on the basis of any surviving rights in the broken covenant of Sinai. In other words, once Israel broke the covenant, God is not obligated to do anything in terms of Israel. He could leave them in captivity. Legally, they broke the covenant. That's why I say it's not on the basis of any surviving rights in the broken covenant of Sinai, but simply because Jehovah remembers his earlier covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, and with Abraham. So it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional. So we'll look at it. So one of the main things is God's faithfulness, judgment of the nations, Israel and Judah breaks the covenant, And then I've just been commenting on the sovereign grace for Israel that God is still going to work with them and he's going to institute a new covenant at the darkest of their hour. Who wants to close for us? Connie.
Amen.